Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, does power inevitably corrupt? My guest this week is Dacha Keltner. He's Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and a prominent sociologist. Dacha's career has ranged from experimental psychology to advising film companies. His past work includes lending his expertise on emotion to the makers of Pixar's Inside Out. But his latest book is about power. It's called The Power Paradox, and it contends that we're all living our day-to-day lives under the influence of a big contradiction. The very qualities that encourage others to promote us into positions of power, empathy, kindness, self-sacrifice, are the first to go by the wayside when we start to exercise power. So, Dakar, let's start from there. For my entirely powerful role here at uh, Economist Radio, (laughs) what is the power paradox and why are you so convinced that it is the case? The power paradox is really simple, which is that you gain power by advancing the welfare of people in your group, right, through empathy and sharing resources and acts of gratitude and building ties. And then regrettably, once we feel powerful, the seductions of that state of being lead us to lose those very skills that got us power in the first place. So when we feel powerful, experiments show we lose our ability to read people's emotions, we become less generous, we become more impulsive. We even act a little bit like sociopaths. So that's the power paradox. And I think it's part of, as you say, most of our relationships, which is we gain power by being good to others. And then the kind of the worst in human nature comes out when we feel powerful. Well, I'm going to unpack that and challenge it a bit. First start, how do we know that we gain power by being benign to others? In fact, we may gain power by not being benign to others, by elbowing others out of the way or just by thinking we're smarter, better, quicker. I mean, what makes you think that we're empathetic to start with? Well, you know, and this is one of the really big surprises in doing the science of power that led to the power paradox, which is there have been about 80 or 90 different studies that examine what kinds of social behaviors lead people to gain power in schools, in military units, in finance firms, in government, in science. And and what you find is it really boils down to this empathy that gets you power, the ability to know what other people think, the ability to respond to people's interests and needs, uh, and then more pro-social tendencies, right? Sort of connecting to others, engaging in the interests of others. That gets you power in all these different contexts. And alongside that, what these studies have found is that, and this is one of the common misconceptions about power, is that Machiavellianism gets you power. And in fact, in most of the context your listeners move through, uh, Machiavellians who are manipulative and deceptive and forceful don't gain that much power. So that's how we know this is what gets you power. So tell me a bit about the kind of experiments that you did to to back this up, because it sounds like a nice thesis that people might argue about down, down the pub. But uh, how do you <laughs> you bear it out? I'm sure you've done a lot more yeah. than just arguing about it in the bar. Uh, 
Those are my best moments, though, is arguing in a bar. So what we've done is we have studied how hierarchies form in different kinds of social groups, right? So we'll study students as they come to college, or we'll study kids as they go to a summer camp and fold into a social hierarchy. I've studied how players play on professional sports teams and even who gains power in the U.S. Senate. And what we do is we look at their social behaviors, right? Are they reaching out to others? Are they connecting? Are they empathizing? Are they good at these sort of empathy-related skills? And then we follow those groups over time and look at who rises in the social group in the eyes of their peers. And it is the kind of the high empathy, warm person who reaches out to others who gains power. With these kinds of studies and others that have looked at, you know, finance firms and military units and people in, you know, government in different countries, we we feel confident about the thesis. You do, even when you're talking about very tough worlds like finance or not so far away from you there, you know, Silicon Valley or places where you have a lot of very talented, very driven people contending for top jobs. You still think that works, even if you take out, you know, I would imagine certain professions reward empathy more than others, but you seem to be saying it works across the piece. Obviously, there are going to be contexts in which a more hard-nosed, ruthless, you know, Machiavellian approach is, is going to work, right? If you're negotiating with drug cartels in Mexico or you're dealing with illegal arms traders in different parts of the world. But this notion that empathy and virtue gains you power, we even put it to the test in American politics of all places. We coded senators' speeches that were televised. In terms of did they show empathy and sort of courage and kindness, or did they show more Machiavellianism and more narcissism? And we found that it was actually the more kind of the kinder, empathetic senators who got more support for their bills. So this principle seems to hold in a lot of surprising contexts that empathy gets you power. But let's talk a bit about the greater good then and, and, and how it might look in our societies day to day. Now, you talk quite a lot about the the greater good in a way that reminds me a bit of the Victorian moralists and how successful we are as, as societies at investing power in those who work towards a greater good. You've got a very good example, which is kind of research on the road and how we drive our cars. So why don't you tell me about that? When I was thinking about what the kind of the magic quality is that gets people power and allows them to enjoy enduring influences in the world, even when they're dead and gone, right? It does boil down to this notion that do you act in ways that advance the greater good of your community or your society or your family? Regrettably, uh, what happens once you feel powerful is you forget it, right? And so one of our more dramatic demonstrations of, of this finding has to do with how people drive, which people care a lot about in California because we spend so much time driving. What we did is really simple. There are parts of California roads called pedestrian zones that are marked with white stripes, and cars have to stop to let pedestrians cross. And we asked a really simple question. We put a Berkeley undergraduate right at the edge of a pedestrian zone. They showed the intention of ready to What be, a willing volunteer you got there. <laughs> so this is actually somebody who's in cahoots with us, so... They knew their lives were on so the line. So the undergraduate stands at the, at the side. So he's a quite exposed position. At very exposed. They look at the oncoming car, and we have an under, another undergraduate who's hiding in the bushes, and they note the prestige of the car. And what we find is drivers of poor cars 
honor the greater good, they always stop for the pedestrian. Drivers of the wealthiest cars blaze through this pedestrian zone, violating the law and putting at risk our pedestrian 46% of the time. So that finding tells us that there's something about power that makes us lose sight of the greater good. So, Dacca, as your book reflects, power is felt just as keenly by its absence. And it's, it's a feeling of powerlessness that's sweeping the world in general. Can I say, we want our country back? No peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! Banking crisis created by nurses, by teachers, by street cleaners. No! Of course it was not! So what do you reckon are the main reasons behind people feeling more powerless, perhaps today, in an era when there is opportunity, there is technology at their disposal, than they did in times when their lives were more constrained? When you live in a, a culture where there are really profound differences between the wealthy and the poor, the poor feel disconnected and powerless. And that psychological sense of being way below other people disempowers people. It activates their stress response. They feel like they're constantly being besieged. One of your findings that leapt out at me was from a series of experiments, but it was really a kind of contention in a way that poorer people felt more empathy. And you explored a bit why that might be. It may be that they were more dependent on each other and that produced more empathy. But I also wondered whether to put the kind of unpopular thesis, because there is a sort of moralising view that the the poor have virtue on their side and the rich do not, and it goes back (laughs) to to the Bible and probably beyond. But did you sort of consider that maybe you could have empathy in a way if you couldn't really afford to do much more than look after your immediate family or your community? The people get suspicious about empathy being demanded of them when they already have a lot of drain on their time and they're worried about how much more they can do. And actually quite a lot of big American and other philanthropists raise that. You know, you do then start to worry that you simply can't keep up with it. What our findings show, Anne, is that A, if I come from a family of lower socioeconomic means, I am tend to be more empathetic, I'm a better judge of people's emotions... In an experiment, I, if I'm given $10, I share more of that money uh, with a stranger than people who come from upper-class backgrounds. If you're presented with photographs that are expressing emotion, you're a keener judge of the emotion in those photographs. If you're given $10 in the experiment and you're asked to give some amount, any amount that you choose away to a stranger, you give more of that money away. But here's a contradiction. If powerlessness brings empathy as you suggest, and empathy is a a stepping stone to to power, and power therefore tends to make you more influential and ultimately richer or have better access to social goods. Why is there not a more virtuous circle here? But most powerless people stay powerless, so why is there not a kind of transaction mechanism into greater social mobility? You know, I think that you would have to take a step back and look at it to answer your question, start to bring in different levels of analysis, right, and start to think about access to social institutions that allow people to rise in society, like in the United States, the university system, which tends to be biased in selecting people from more upper-class backgrounds. And so within those contexts, you will see the empathetic rise more dramatically, but those systems prevent the very poor from rising. Well, let's look at the solutions that you concluded to the the power paradox, if indeed it, it can have anything as simple as solutions. What do you think we can do to reduce the self 
reinforcing nature of the powerlessness or indeed the sort of overpower, which you seem to be suggesting that too much power is bad. But we do know that systems have tried to take it away from people, state socialism being just one of them, have not got a great track record, however much you might uh, complain about, you know, on the side of the progressive agenda in the United yeah. States. I'm a psychologist. I shied away from straightforward economic arguments, but you can make those, right? So how do we address the historic levels of inequality and what I think, as I show in the last chapter, the costs of that inequality for the powerless in terms of brain development? We know that if you come from a life of poverty, your brain will grow less fast as a child. We know if you live in a life of extreme poverty in the United States, which is one in six, one in seven people, your immune system will be compromised. And there are very compelling data to that effect. So one argument is you try to get economic resources to these people and change the economic circumstances of their lives. But don't you think there's another interesting paradox here, which is when you've if you do what you're doing, you're suggesting giving more power to the state. And we know that the state is possibly one of the least responsive institutions when it comes to handling power. So your power paradox for people might also work if you give more power to the state. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. The power paradox uh, and the inevitable abuses of power does apply to the state. One of the interesting things I did is read in the writing the power paradox, you know, histories of the great dictators, and, and they are living proof or dead proof of exactly what you're talking about. Stalin being a classic example of when you concentrate power in the state, you see the same abuses as if you concentrate power in the hands of Wall Street financiers. So in thinking about the problems of powerlessness, there are economic arguments, but there are also psychological things we can do. What I suggest is we need to return to a culture of respect. We need to return to a culture where we dignify others. We need to return to the sense of the greater good that, that really is the foundation of strong societies. Dacher Keltner, thank you very much for unpacking the power paradox with us. And if you'd like to demonstrate the power of your knowledge, you can do so on Twitter. We're at Economist Radio or email to radio at economist.com. And if you're interested in the softer exercise of power, you can go back in our archive and find my interview with Richard Thaler talking about the power of small interventions or nudges to transform the way we live. That's it for this week's The Economist Asks. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.